Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Rice, and I'm CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are talking about the rise nationally of STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, and birth control. And my guest today is Dr. Myron Bethel, OBGYN specialist with Renowned Medical Group. Welcome, Dr. Bethel. Thank you very much. This is uh, an interesting topic. It's not one that we talk about very much, but certainly there's been a great deal of information lately on the rise of sexually transmitted diseases, specifically syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. It's interesting with the syphilis and gonorrhea, and of course, I'm a creature of the 1950s, that uh, I guess in the 50s we would have assumed that by the time the year 2020, that uh, syphilis and gonorrhea wouldn't be around anymore, but it's been around uh, for centuries, hasn't it? Uh, Yes, it has. It was first identified um, in about 1905. Uh, Syphilis has gone through um, multiple cycles. In fact, we had a rise in syphilis in the 90s, um, and now in in, uh, here the 21st century, we're actually seeing the long-term sequelae of the rise in the 90s. It then became uh, less prominent, and over the last uh, five to six years, nationally as well as here in in northern Nevada, we've noticed a marked increase in syphilis. Um, The rise, I think, is up to 14%. Uh, this is both uh, syphilis that is manifested in uh, men as well as, as women, and it affects um, uh, multiple uh, uh, situations, including uh, the transmission of syphilis to the, uh, a growing embryo. Well, that's a um, quite a packed statement that you just made for us. The rise here in Nevada nationally of syphilis um, by 14%. Do we have any... Uh, sense of why it has risen so much, especially syphilis? Well, um, our society is becoming more and more complex. It's becoming um, more stressful. And as a result of that, people are uh, relying on things like drugs. Uh, Because of drugs, their attention, their ideas, their focus, their planning um, is somewhat hampered. As a result, they end up having sexual encounters without thinking ahead about what they could do to prevent sexually transmitted disease. So we think, you know, it's 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 actually multifactorial. Um, you have uh, the lack of adequate condom use. You have the increase in drug use. You have the increase in um, people meeting each other on social media and not developing developing long-term intimacy before they encounter uh, sexual uh, relationships. This all plays a role in increasing sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, I also should note that a large percentage of sexually transmitted diseases, including uh, and particularly chlamydia, which is the largest and um, the most uh, uh, highly reportable uh, STD uh, in the United States, um, the majority of these are asymptomatic uh, to the individual, both male and female. <clears throat> in a female, primarily uh, chlamydia is manifested by cervicitis, which results in um, discharge, uh, which could, if not uh, looked at carefully, could be construed as just normal vaginal discharge. So because it's asymptomatic, uh, these diseases are, are very likely to serve as reservoirs for uh, uh, re- recurrent infection. 
So let's talk about chlamydia a little bit, because in in uh, my lifetime, that's sort of a new word. Syphilis and gonorrhea was certainly something we talked about in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but chlamydia uh, feels relatively new, is it? Um, it's not relatively new. Um, I think that we're really beginning to see what it is. When When I first started in medicine, chlamydia wasn't even considered a bacteria. It was considered a bacterial-like organism. And it's because of the life cycle of chlamydia. Um, it has uh, both an intracellular and an extracellular life um, cycle. And because of that, it's somewhat difficult to, to cure unless you actually specifically um, get the organism why it's in its intracellular state. So um, it's been around. Um, it's, be, it's, it's very difficult to cure. And consequently, um, it's, uh, and it, it results in an asymptomatic discharge in females. Asymptomatic discharge in men uh, called urethritis. Um, the, uh, this, this discharge is, um, basically is it goes uh, without notice, and uh, chlamydia is, continues to rise and rise and rise. And currently, um, it's, we're looking at more than um, a million five cases uh, nationally. Well, wow, that's amazing. So let's talk about if if the chlamydia and even possibly syphilis and gonorrhea are not really noticeable, if it's a, as you say, it's a discharge that could be seen as normal, then the annual exam of a woman becomes incredibly important. Um, as a OBGYN specialist, when a woman comes in for her annual exam, do you just naturally test for chlamydia? Um, well, first of all, we have to get informed consent to, to test for uh, STDs. Um, uh, to their credit, the large percentage of patients would want to get tested for uh, STDs. Uh, we, we basically uh, look at um, uh, metrics in terms of um, healthcare providers uh, um, testing for these ST STDs um, if they're testing in certain age groups. Uh, primarily, the ages 16 through 21 and 21 through 25 are the most likely um, to be tested for uh, gonorrhea and chlamydia. Uh, post uh, age 25, it's usually based upon um, discussions with the patient relative to their lifestyle. I read quite a few articles that there's an increase in STDs in the elderly population. Well, um, the elderly population... Um, this is this is an interesting uh, aside uh, because um, of our stressors that I talked about earlier. Uh, we're finding a lot of people who are actually meeting each other uh, online, uh, even in the elderly population. And as a result, um, these uh, individuals have uh, uh, lived uh, four or five decades, um, and they've had their families, and they're looking for uh, intimacy. And because of the, the uh, of that, they feel that the probably the person they're um, having relationships with uh, are not uh, exposed to STIs, and so it's a fallacy because as it's being asymptomatic, most people walk around who are, have the disease don't know that they do. So yes, it is on the rise, and it will be on the rise for anyone who is involved in in unsafe practices. Let's talk about uh, what happens if it's left untreated, because uh, we talked about some stats. Syphilis increased 14% to more than 35,000 cases. Gonorrhea up 5%, 580,000 cases. Chlamydia has increased 3% to more than 1.7 million cases. That's a lot of STDs. And 
if it is undetectable, there must be quite a few people that are untreated. And what happens if, uh, if you don't get treated? Well, there's long-term sequelae. Um, going through syphilis, syphilis, um, we primarily are uh, referring to its rise in primary and secondary syphilis. But um, we, we should uh, note that if left untreated, syphilis will continue. It becomes dormant in the, in the body and becomes latent. Uh, until it starts to develop uh, late syphilis, um, which uh, will affect the heart, uh, affect the brain, and um, people can um, essentially have uh, mental breakdowns uh, at, with late tertiary syphilis. So it's very, very serious. And in terms of chlamydia, I, I think it's of interest to note that um, um, if you have chlamydia and it's un left untreated, number one, uh, 20% of those cases can go to pelvic inflammatory disease in the female. Uh, pelvic inflammatory disease essentially is an infectious process that um, affects both the uterus, tubes, and ovaries. Consequently, that leaves scarring, which results in secondary infertility. Uh, patients who get pregnant can sometimes get pregnant in the fallopian tube as a result of that scarring um, and end up having uh, ectopic pregnancies, which are surgical emergencies. You know, and I should note um, that uh, the chlamydia left untreated um, in a pregnant patient uh, could pass to um, the infant via um, um, increased risk of conjunctivitis and pneumonia in the baby. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because I know that uh, one of the secondary factors of the increase in syphilis is that it's increased 40% in newborns. Let's, let's talk about how that happens, what happens for the newborn, both with syphilis and perhaps even chlamydia. Well, when syphilis um, uh, goes into uh, uh, its uh, bloodstream, into the bloodstream of the affected person, it, it can cross the placenta. And because it can cross the placenta, that means that the infant can be affected. Congenital syphilis is on the rise. It can result in um, interuterine fetal death, increased risk of stillbirths. Um, it can affect um, uh, everything from uh, oral and uh, cranial development uh, in, in a baby. So congenital syphilis is a very, very serious and um, leaves long-term mor morbidity to the baby. Goodness. And chlamydia the same? Well, because of the uh, the possibility of transmission to the baby, yes, you could get conjunctivitis, which could lead to um, significant eye disease, pneumonia, which, as you know, pneumonia can end up in death. So it's very, very serious. And we, we take it so serious that we um, will, uh, in every pregnant patient, regardless of age, as, as opposed to what I was referring to with age groups before, Regardless of age, we test for uh, gonorrhea, we test for chlamydia and syphilis, and because of the rise in all of these entities, uh, we actually test twice in pregnancy. So uh, what we used to test just at the beginning of pregnancy, now we test um, at the beginning and at the 28th or 29th week. And if we, we find it, we, we treat it, and then we test later on, approximately three to four weeks later, for cure. And then we test three months after that to make sure that they're not reinfected or whether the, the treatment was ineffective. So let's talk about treatment because if caught early, it is easily treated? Um, if it's taken correctly, yes, it is. Um, in a pregnant patient, we can treat with uh, a one-time, one-dose uh, medication for chlamydia. Um, with syphilis, we can treat with uh, a penicillin, which is quite ubiquitous, effective, 
um, and uh, different types of penicillin are used based upon the different stages of syphilis that we find a patient having. And do you also test for HIV? Yes. So we're looking at, is that, is HIV considered a communicable disease? Uh, yes, it is. And um, you might note that there is um, a significant instant instance of a coexistence of STDs. Um, if you find a chlamydia, a patient with chlamydia, in a normal population, there's a 7% chance of coexistence of chlamydia and gonorrhea. Um, there's an increase um, of HIV in anyone who has multiple STIs or sexually transmitted diseases. I should note that with increased uh, male-to-male sex, um, there's also an increased risk of um, STDs being associated with HIV, uh, in some cases as much as 40%. Well, let's talk about the availability of for men and women to get exams and get tested. Uh, we know that there seems to be some decrease in funding for government programs, uh, decrease for certain screenings, and um, what can we do to get more people tested, do you think, Dr. Bethel? Well, um, I we must um, um, plead to every patient to try to seek uh, health care. Um, yes, some of the government programs have uh, decreased the availability of screening, but there still are services available. Renown has many services available to the underinsured and the non-insured uh, patient to get um, both uh, tested and treated. Um, we have expanded our services to include gynecology, which traditionally, um, for the lower socioeconomic uh, um, group of patients, we uh, restricted our services to pregnancy, but we've expanded it to include full-service gynecology. So that is available. Washoe County Health Department is still available, and they do a great job in tracking um, uh, STIs. As you know, chlamydia is a reportable disease. Gonorrhea is a reportable disease. Syphilis is reportable. And Washoe County Health Department follows those, tracks those, and makes sure that um, not only the patient, but the partner is informed and treated. So let's go back then to somebody who uh, comes into the office and they are positive for uh, an STD. How do you know if they are contacting their partners? What is the net, what is the protocol for that? That's a really good question. Um, there's, um, there's some uh, new uh, developments in that. Um, we've started to consider what's called expedited partner treatment, um, which means that without seeing the partner, um, we are now able to um, after counseling and talking to the patient and trying to um, uh, isolate their, their, how many partners they have, we have the ability to treat uh, their partner sight unseen. Um, that's called expedited partner treatment. Um, the, the health department, as I said, also uh, does a great job in tracking down their partners and taking a complete um, psychosocial history. So if somebody, we're, we talked a few minutes ago about the increase of people, I guess the word would be hooking up online. If they don't know how to get a hold of that person, are we left with no recourse at all? Um, these are questions that we're still trying to answer. And, um, and I would not like to think that we have no recourse at all. 
Um, I think that people, when they realize the magnitude of the disease process they have, um, will become very, very honest with their healthcare practitioner um, and tell them as much information as they can and give us that information so that we uh, can contact them and so they don't feel like they have to be involved in the loop. Sometimes they don't want to be involved in that loop. And and what about the young people? What what do you think we could be doing more of for the high school student, for the college student? Well, um, it's been shown that sex education in school decreases the incidence of SDIs and teen pregnancies. Um, and availability to condoms, uh, both in free clinics, the health department, um, um, are definite ways to decrease uh, SDIs. Uh, education is the key. Uh, I should say education is king. Um, the more a person knows, the more they're able to be prepared. We talked a little bit about drugs and how it hampers their ability to, to think ahead. Um, so if we educate them ahead, um, they'll be prepared. A prepared person will have less chances of getting these asymptomatic sexually transmitted diseases. Makes good sense. Prepared person. Let's talk a little bit about um, about where you can get STDs, because this would be something that in my generation wasn't discussed much, but you can get an STD, an oral STD, yes. and also an anal STD. Yes. And, and spe Sorry to interrupt you, no, but specifically uh, in male-to-male -male sex, um, um, there's definitely chances of getting um, STDs anally. There's chances of getting STDs orally. You know, I should say that in some of the younger population, uh, oral sex is not viewed as sex. Right. I was just going to say that. Right. Yeah. So as a result, they're not really thinking that they have the possibility of transmitting because they're looking at it from the standpoint of one, the highest thing is I'm not going to become pregnant, but they don't really feel that it's truly sex. But any commingling of secretions um, in fluids will uh, increase the risk of these transmissions of disease. And how, how does one deal with that? In a annual exam for, say, an 18-year-old, do, do you ask the question on whether they've had oral sex? And then would you do a swab? Um, we do ask the question. Um, I would say that we don't ask the question as much as we should. Um, but we do ask the question. And if we do get a positive answer, yes, we do test for that. You know, and um, I should say we, we talk about uh, chlamydia and gonorrhea and syphilis. Uh, we also um, should talk about, you know, HSV, um, which is uh, herpes simplex, which is a disease process that um, really has no cure. Um, essentially, it, it, it has uh, ways of ameliorating the symptoms. Um, but it's a disease that uh, sits in the nerve endings and comes out in times of uh, stress. Um, and once you have it, you have it. Most people look at, say, herpes simplex as, oh, I just have a fever blister. But um, whether it's a fever blister herpes, uh, what we call simplex 1, or simplex 2, which is primarily and traditionally in the genital area, because of increased oral genital sex, they now um, uh, cross over. And you can have uh, simplex 1 in the genital area and simplex 2 orally. So if you had simplex too orally, could someone else get it from drinking out of your glass? I think that's uh, pretty much um, a myth. Um, 
it really requires the commingling of secretions and mucous membranes. Um, viruses, um, although there are some very tenacious viruses, viruses by and large won't survive on, on inert surfaces for a very long period of time. But you would get it safe from kissing. Yes. You could. Yes. So somebody, I mean, I'm putting two and two together here, Dr. Bessel, that um, if there is an increase in oral STDs and if you don't know it, you really could pass it to quite a few people. Quite a way. few. Quite a few. Yeah. And it depends upon um, your proclivities and it depends upon, um, you know, you, who do you interact with. But as I said, with increase, as you say, hooking up on social media, um, it could be a kissing rampage. Yeah. I mean, the, the herpes you would see uh, inside your mouth, but the other STDs, you, how would you even know you had it then? Well, you may not. Um, specifically, um, syphilis is manifested uh, with its primary infectious lesion. It's called a chancre. And that primary infectious lesion is asymptomatic. It's usually a painless ulcer uh, in any area that you've contacted. So uh, traditionally in the genitalia, but it could be orally. It could be uh, on the abdomen. It could be uh, on breasts. Uh, any area where uh, you've contacted this infectious agent, then you would get it. And because of its life cycle, it comes between nine and uh, nine days and six weeks uh, after contact. Then it can stay around for two to three weeks, but it's asymptomatic. And if it's not in a very visible per uh, place, and if a person's not really inspecting their body carefully, they could miss this lesion. It goes away, and then its syphilis will then um, drop down and become dormant until it manifests itself as secondary syphilis, which is usually a rash. But rashes are common. So how do you know this is a syphilitic rash? You don't. Um, so you have to be very, very uh, uh, keyed into your body. Well, I can say that um, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, my goodness, we all need to be careful who we're kissing that's <laughs> all very clear to me that one needs to be uh, as cautious about who they're kissing as cautious as they are about who they're having uh, sexual intercourse with. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's one and the same. Yeah, it is. That's, uh, that's, that's a really powerful piece of information, Dr. Bethel. I think it, it truly is for all of us. So anything else that we want to talk about on STDs on the rise? We've talked about uh, what it is, the different types uh, how you can get STDs, a little bit about why they're on their rise. Um, let's one more time talk about how important it is to get an exam and to be able to um, see your doctor on a regular basis. Well, um, we're also going through um, sort of a, a perceptual flux uh, with um, how often you're supposed to see your provider. Uh, a lot of people, uh, say for example, traditionally we've done pap smears. Mm -hmm. And pap smears, in, when I first started in medicine, were um, done annually. And it took a lot to educate the population that they needed to see their um, female health provider uh, once, once a year. And it was because, oh, I have to have my pap smear. Well, now pap smears, um, because we understand the progression of disease cervically, um, that it's uh, directed by um, a human papillomavirus, another sexually transmitted disease. Um, we know that the life cycle uh, is slow, 
and that if people have um, normal pap smears, that we don't need to do it annually. Um, now this is being uh, passed to the general populace, and their thought process is, so I don't need to see um, a healthcare provider but once every three years. And so um, we're having to now uh, fight an uphill battle to re-educate patients that they need to be seen annually, but they don't need to actually have their pap smears annually. Yes, and most women really thought in terms of the pap smear. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's a perceptual um, miseducation, if you will. Well, and there's so many numerous reasons to see the physician annually. Right. Preventative medicine is is extremely important, and Renown really is um, um, putting a lot of emphasis on preventative health care um, because we know as an accountable care organization that if you prevent the disease, the, pe- the, the patient is healthier. Right. Well, that's such valuable information, Dr. Bethel, and I know that Renown um, has quite a few ways that somebody can get an exam there and can get an annual exam, they can get a primary care doc, they can get an OBGYN specialist. What number would they call if somebody who's listening uh, would like to get uh, an appointment with the doctor? Uh, they should call uh, 775-982-5000. Okay. Well, STDs have I that's valuable information. I think that we've uh, brought up just about everything that somebody needs to know on it. This was a a two-part podcast. We're going to talk about birth control, and it seems like a a pretty good uh, thing to talk about after we've talked about STDs, but not that many forms of birth control would stop an STD, right? Well, um, there's birth control and there's uh, safe safe sex practices. Right. Um, Birth control is primarily designed to prevent pregnancy. Um, but um, in a, a well-educated, a well-equipped person now needs to have a two-pronged approach. They need a safe sex um, um, device as well, which in, in our particular uh, specialty, we advocate um, the use of condom therapy. Uh, condoms will, not 100%, but um, a, a very, very high percentage of the time prevent you from um, acquiring um, sexually transmitted diseases. Now, um, there are sexually transmitted diseases that you could get, um, in, as we said, through oral contact. And obviously, a, a condom is only going to be so effective unless it's placed exactly properly. And as we said, a lot of young of the young population, uh, not planning ahead, don't always have the condom. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about safe sex, because if you to really have safe sex without the use of a condom, both partners need to have been tested and come out clean, right? Yes, and um, I, I would assume that they would be tested on a regular basis uh, because one test does not um, give you carte blanche throughout the entire relationship. Unless, of course, it's a strictly monogamous relationship um, and uh, um, and then you can essentially rely upon the, uh, the veracity of your partner. So let's move into birth control. Um, I grew up in the 50s and became sexually active in the mid-60s, and there was not really, there wasn't birth control then. But I lived through the introduction and the advent of the pill, and I think that that was somewhere in the 60s that the pill came out. Yes. And it changed, it changed everything in many ways for women. 
it gave them a certain degree of freedom and um which you know we we advocate um a female uh should be uh basically um allowed to uh control uh their reproductive health um and the pill definitely helps that um um and the pill in the 60s is a totally different animal than the pill yes. uh, in uh, 2020. Uh, 2020. <laughs> um, it's uh, the difference between uh, uh, Model T and um, a Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the pills uh. now are designed to not only prevent pregnancy, they also uh, will uh, prevent uh, ovarian cyst formation, decrease the total amount of blood loss, or decrease anemia decrease the incidence of ovarian cancer, um, and in some cases help with acne, um, and decrease the total amount of blood loss um, per month down to um, what used to be seven days to uh, maybe two or three hours in a day. Fascinating. I mean, we've come so far, and it's not just a pill. I know now myself, being the age I am, I'm not up on all the different types of birth control, but I know that there are numerous ones from something that's implanted to different kinds of pills um, to all sorts of things. Right. There, there really are. Um, you know, but they, we don't fill all the voids um, that are, um, are out there. But um, primarily, there's a family of what we call long-acting reversible contraceptives, or we like to use uh, the moniker LARC. Uh, LARCs are available in both in, implantable uh, intrauterine devices as well as, as you mentioned, the subdermal uh, implant that usually is placed in the arm. Um, these long-acting reversible contraceptives are long-acting, so um, from three to five to ten years of um, effective contraception with the one device. So it takes um, the, the planning out, it takes the regularity and frequency of the pill out of the equation because the pill by its method is probably the most effective form of contraception that's out there. Um, it has about a 0.05% failure rate. However, in actual use, uh, the failure rate falls into the same realm as long-acting reversible contraceptives, about a 2% failure rate. And that's because people forget to take human, them. Human, right. That's the human factor. Um, you know, they forget to take the pills. Uh, they take other antibiotics, and antibiotics have been shown to make the pills less effective. Um, so uh, the pill is still a, a mainstay. Uh, but the long-acting reversible contraceptives have changed um, the, the way we uh, present um, uh, contraception to our younger population. So the long-acting uh, birth controls, you have to take them out if you want to get pregnant. Yes. Same with the ones in your arm and the ones at an IUD. Yes. And how does a... What kind of counseling is done for a woman to decide what's right for her in birth control? Well, I think that we take um, a lot of things into uh, account. Uh, the patient's age, their menstrual history, um, their history of sexual activity, how frequent are they having sex. Um, we take their, their health, their weight. Uh, all of that plays a role in, in advising. Um, you know, if there's any question that there may not be compliance uh, with, say, a daily birth control pill, 
then we usually advocate the long-acting reversible contraceptives. Um, the intrauterine devices are interesting in that they also now are impregnated with hormone, which will not only um, aid in contraception, but will also um, markedly decrease the total amount of bleeding monthly. So um, the bleeding, as, as we said, um, with the pill is, is uh, really, really um, uh, markedly less with the newer pills. But with some of the implantable, long-acting, reversible contraceptives, the bleeding can stop entirely. Well, we've come so far, and with anything where we've come far, it's off of the uh, women that have tried all of these birth control methods. And um, I remember the IUD and the when they first came out and the cramping and the intermittent bleeding and same with the pill. I mean, it, so a lot of those symptoms that my age perhaps put up with, uh, it seems like we've been able to mitigate them. To, to a, um, a certain extent, um, you know, the, uh, for example, some of the intrauterine devices have differing degrees of hormone. So some of them are designed to stop the period entirely. Some are designed to allow you to have a monthly spotting phase. And some um, will still give you intermittent spotting like you mentioned in the old days. Mm-hmm. Um, so we counsel patients. And, and the biggest thing is education. If we counsel them first, they tolerate um, these um, what in essence are, are um, um, uh, problems, uh, nu- nuisances, if you will, um, to have um, spotting that comes up erratically. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about the morning after pill? That were, that was, I I remember. I don't know what when that was. Was that in the eighties or the nineties? And it caused such a stir, and now it seems like it's just a natural thing. And can you get that over the counter? Yeah, it's a natural thing, but it's also causing a stir because now um, you've probably heard of pharmacists who have uh, refused to give uh, the morning after yes. pill for um, uh, personal religious reasons, which is really um, a function of miseducation um, because uh, the morning after pill is not an abortifacient. You know, they do not abort pregnancies. They uh, disrupt ovulation. Um, They disrupt fertilization. Um, They're very effective. And I I think it's only fair that if someone has uh, made the mistake or um, of of not planning ahead um, and had spontaneous uh, uh, intimacy, um, they should be able to um, prevent pregnancy because pregnancy is... um, an 18-plus-year result of your <laughs> night's activities. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it is. So the morning-after pill, can you get that over the counter? You, you should. It depends upon uh, what state you live in, um, um, but you should be able to get it over the counter. Uh, there actually are now some interesting caveats to the morning-after pill. There are um, there are ways of using your existing um, oral contraceptive as a morning after pill if you've been pre-educated by your provider. Uh, there's now uh, some advocacy for using the copper intrauterine device as a morning after. Um, I, I w- wouldn't obviously call it a pill, but it's a morning after method uh, to prevent um, uh, implantation. And actually it prevents fertilization. Uh, and it's probably the copper in it that prevents the sperm and the egg from fertilizing each other. Um, But 
the morning after pill needs to be fast, it needs to be available, it needs to be effective. And the IUD, although it's probably going to be in the future the most effective uh, morning after device, is not fast because it requires insurance uh, approval, um, insertion, um, and it's a process um, that usually is uh, more than the four or five days that you need to, to get the, uh, this morning after solution. So for women, a little bit like what we talk about with the annual exams for women that are low income, that want birth control, uh, are there places where they can get it at low cost? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, the uh, Washoe County Health Department, Planned Parenthood um, are the, the, the easiest places to get these things at cost. Now, um, we also at, at Renown uh, offer the long-acting reversible contraceptives, the IUDs, and Nexplanon, which is a subdermal implant. We offer those to um, um, patients on Medicaid, um, and Medicaid will supply us the device, and we just insert it, and essentially it's a device insertion fee that Medicaid pays for. So it is available to um, the lower socioeconomic patient. And for women that have used birth control for years and now they want to get pregnant, what is the recommendation for how long you should be off birth control before you try? Well, we used to say three months, um, but the data shows that you really do not have to be off of it three months. Uh, you can go off and essentially become pregnant. It's not going to adversely affect, number one, um, the developing embryo. So it's not going to increase your risk of um, miscarriage. Um, it's not going to cause any congenital uh, malformations or anomalies in the baby. The only um, caveat is that it's very important in any pregnancy to have it be well-timed. Um, in other words, we need to know what gestational age the pregnancy is at all times. And if a person has been on the pill and then gets off the pill and becomes pregnant without having a normal menstrual cycle, then it really affects our ability to date the pregnancy appropriately. So I usually recommend that they spend that month um, using barrier contraception, primarily condoms, um, allowing their body to uh, reset, if you will, uh, for them to have a normal period. And it also allows them an opportunity to take prenatal vitamins because prenatal vitamins have been shown if taken prior to conception to decrease the incidence of neural tube defects, which are like uh, spina bifida, meningomalacil. Um, and although not uh, extremely common, it does exist, and it's not age-related. Well, let's talk about sort of the ultimate uh, birth control other than abstinence. Let's talk about women getting their tubes tied. Can they get their tubes tied? Can a woman... Uh, come to someone such as yourself, an OBGYN specialist, and say, I'd like my tubes tied and get it done as an outpatient? Yes. Um, I should say that uh, tied is a euphemism. <laughs> the only one I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's interesting uh, because in some countries, tied actually is that. It means that you can have your tubes tied and later on untie. Oh, untie them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that's not true in the United States and certainly not here in northern Nevada. When we do this procedure, it's meant to be permanent. Um, however, uh, the recent um, um, data is that if you want permanent sterilization as a female, 
then your provider will often offer you full salpingectomy instead of tying, clipping, cutting, burning, which were the traditional methods. Those methods have been shown to have a 1 in 200 failure rate. So removing the entire tube takes your failure rate down to the Mary and Joseph and Jesus level. <laughs> Crack me up. But uh, there's, a, there's an added health benefit. Um, it's been it's been suggested that the source of ovarian cancer may actually originate in the fallopian tube. Oh, interesting. So um, the theory is that if you are going to undertake any form of sterilization or uh, hysterectomy, that the provider should as well offer you removal of the fallopian tubes entirety in its entirety to decrease your ultimate risk for ovarian cancer in the future. So if a woman has never had children and she's still of childbearing age, can she get her tubes tied? Uh, if she's competent to make an informed decision, yes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we do, I mean, there's always been um, at what age is a person competent to make that decision. And uh, there are some people, uh, well, there are some insurance companies and primarily state, state um, um, and government insurance companies don't. And, uh, wish us to do it at an age less than 25 years of age. But there are cases where we do. I, it's not uncommon to have a 22-year-old with three children. And what about vasectomies for men? I don't have any stats as to whether that's still something that men um, take advantage of quite often. I know that someone in my family got a vasectomy probably two years ago. And the interesting thing is that his friends uh, were freaked out by it. I mean, these are 40-year-old men. They couldn't believe that he, you know, oh, you're kidding. You actually did that. And, you know, there still seems to be a lot of stigma around vasectomies. Well, you know, that, that has um, affected our ability to look at disease processes in men uh, overall. And men, for example, we had the whole concept in females of pap smears. Well, to see the evolution of that disease process required us to do biopsies and to follow people. And traditionally, men would not let that happen for them. So um, our understanding of the progression of disease in men is somewhat uh, um, stalled because men don't allow traditionally us to do these things. Vasectomy is right in there with that. Um, however, you know, um, there is a fair number of... Um, uh, men that are in a monogamous relationship having two or three children um, who have elected to undergo vasectomy and it, they have no long-term sequelae. It doesn't affect their potency, their libido. Um, if anything, it, it makes their relationship stronger because a female having taken nine, um, um, pregnancy, nine months of pregnancy, delivery, and um, all the pain and anguish that goes along with that um, is it, um, es essentially she uh, feels better in a relationship if her husband chooses to do the vasectomy and not her because the vasectomy is a safer procedure than uh, the salpingectomy or the tubes tied because it doesn't require general anesthesia. Well, it allows um, him to be a part of the overall solution. That that's that's a better way of saying it. Yeah, yes, not just mm -hmm. 
part of the problem. Right. <laughs> part of the problem. <laughs> so what else? Is there anything else we want to talk about about birth control? Again, if you don't mind giving the phone number for uh, that we gave for Renown a little while ago where somebody could call and get an appointment with a physician. 775-982-5000. And someone could call and get a family practice physician. They could get an appointment with an OBGYN specialist, and they can talk about some of the issues that we've talked about today, STDs, the birth control issue. Uh, it It's fabulous, I think, as a mother of um, a daughter and daughter-in-laws that we've come so far with birth control. Um, but I also need to ask, because I read probably a couple years ago that they were looking at a birth control pill for men, but I never saw it go anywhere. Once again, the, the, the stalling of, uh, evolve, <laughs> of men's uh, health care. Um, well, there, it's, 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 a, it's a quagmire um, because um, to um, have adequate contraception in a man requires something that's going to decrease the sperm count. And if it decreases the sperm count, it often will decrease libido. So if you have decreased libido, decreased sperm count, it sort of makes the concept of contraception moot. <laughs> Understandably. Right. Anything else you'd like to tell our listeners around birth control? Well, I, am, I would say that um, you know, we've advanced quite a bit in birth control, and I think that uh, there's a lot of non-contraceptive benefits from using some of the newer methods. Um, it takes away the monthly discomfort and pain and anguish that women go through, um, often missing school, missing work. Um, these um, newer methods can decrease that therefore increasing their productivity and increasing their overall health. Excellent. I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you, Dr. Myron Bethel, OBGYN specialist with Renowned Medical Group. We've been talking today about the rise in STDs nationally and about birth control and how far we have come. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For a list of future podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast.